Hello, Politics Plus Media 101 listeners. Today's episode is our last show being recorded before Mr. John Gunnison rejoins us as he's just landed stateside from his time in Qatar and other GCC states uh, visiting the World Cup. So today's episode is with the author of the substack, The Present Age, Parker Malloy. Parker and I sat down and we discussed everything political media. We get into cable news, we get into print outlets like the New York Times and others, and finally, we do discuss Substack. So strap in, consider subscribing to Parker's Substack, which you'll find a link to down on the bottom, and let us know how the show went. All right, well, Parker, thank you very much for joining us this evening. It's uh, great to get able to see you. Last time, I think we did this on Clubhouse or a social audio platform, and now we're on our uh, podcasting platform. Uh, So before we get into everything, have you seen any baseball signings? Because I know we're both big baseball fans. Any baseball signings from these winter meetings that you really love, really hate? What is your take so far? I am a Cubs fan. It's very sad to see that Wilson Contreras, the our beloved catcher, uh, has apparently signed a signed a contract with the St. Louis Cardinals, five years and whatever it is, eighty seven million dollars, which is a ton of money, but not in like professional athlete terms. Yep. So it's so sad, but that that's one that's making that's that's bumming me out. It hit you in the feels. He was one of your favorite players. I'm assuming. Yeah, he. I mean, he was. He was like all that was left. <laughs> he was the only good one left. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's like I. I saw something that was like here. Here's like the possible Cubs starting lineup for next season, and it's like, oh God, what is this? A bunch of bunch of rookies and older journeymen. And- yeah, I. I started. I started uh, collecting baseball cards again after. Uh, like after the Cubs traded away Anthony Rizzo and Chris Bryant and Javi Baez a couple seasons back, I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna buy the the rookie cards of all the all the players they got in that deal, and I'm gonna I'm gonna keep an eye on them. And it's like the fun thing about baseball cards is if you're not looking for anything special, it's like, yeah, that that card's a dollar, cool. <laughs> you know, go on eBay and you're just like, you know. You, yeah, yeah, I got 15 cards, but it only cost me $8. Don't worry, <laughs> you know. Because there's like 10,000 players in the league. Yeah, you know. Other than that, I, I'm just, I'm hoping that the Cubs land someone like uh, Carlos Correa or uh, Dansby Swanson. I, I would like to see them get one of those two, but I don't know if it's going to happen. To build around, yeah. So for the Red Sox, we have a player, Xander Bogarts, who everybody wants to re-sign. He's apparently a great guy in the clubhouse. So his teammates like him, he's um, a great interview. He seems very genuine. He likes him Boston, which not everybody does takes a special kind of person. Um, I I just really hope we don't sign him because in, in sports um, and I don't know if it's similar in politics, but in sports, you're basically paying for past performance. So you, he's 30 years old. If we give him an eight year contract, for the last four years of it, we're going to be paying um, for a crappy player, most likely. So um, not to get too far down the rabbit hole, but that's kind of my heterodox take um, from a Red Sox fan perspective, because everybody is like browbeating the ownership into signing this player because the Red Sox sucked last year like the Cubs. Yeah. So 
um, that, that, and we will get into heterodox and some, um, you know, folks that maybe made that word popular and <laughs> are the only reason why I know that word. Um, but as we get into our takes and I, and I think that this is a great symbolism for, uh, what we're going to discuss with political commentators, you and I got into a Twitter argument a while back. Which one? <laughs> I, well, yeah, we've gotten into, yeah. into, into several Twitter arguments. The one that I remember and I and I had purged my Twitter account since, but it was basically about Mandela Barnes. And uh-huh. he oh, got right, right. there was yeah. some endorsement that he thanked Bernie Sanders on on Twitter. That was it. And we got into a back and forth. And and this will also foreshadow our discussion. But we got into a back and forth. And I'm like, well, he's going to lose. He's not a good candidate. And my idea was that he was too progressive. Mm-hmm. So I just want to say I told you so. You did tell me so. <laughs> I, you know what? I, re- I remember that, but I, I still, the, the, the idea that like, I feel like a Bernie endorsement is less toxic than, than, than it sometimes gets made out to be, you know, but, but he, d- he did lose that race. So what can I say? I, I, I give that to you. <laughs> I, I wish I wasn't right because 2024, we need all the, as a Democrat, Yeah. Um, we need, we need all this, the seats we can get. And, you know, it wasn't just the Bernie endorsement. It was the running and not distancing himself from the progressive candidates or electeds like Fetterman did. I'm bringing this to you tongue in cheek, partially, mm-hmm. because as you know, and, and as I know, like, it's very difficult to point out any one thing with certainty and say, this is why an election went this certain way. Because um, even in, in the Wisconsin race, right, Mandela Barnes received 1.31 million votes and Evers, who is more moderate, received 1.358. But they're not running against the same candidate. They're running for Senate and governor. So so it's very difficult um, to compare it. And that, and that really brings me to, to why I brought this up. It wasn't to say, oh, I told you so. It was <laughs> to get your take on the the cable news analysts that we see. And and I mean cable news. So that could be Fox or MSNBC and CNN. And I know they're all different. But Parker, after an election or any issue that isn't very binary that we can say one plus one equals two, this is the outcome. Do we feel like most of these analysts and commentators are giving us honest takes or are they using the information, the data to just justify their priors? Help us understand what we're listening to on cable news. Yeah, uh, that's I mean, that's that's a great question. And I I believe that it's, you know, there there are let's let's say in in a case where it's it's not obvious why a race went the way it did, you know, because obviously, you know, there are times where you're like, yes, that was the moment that this was lost. But I I think that there is a is a tendency to, uh, you know, among cable news analysts and commentators and talking heads to to basically say that the reason things happened was because candidate A did not take on my pet issue, you know, or candidate A talked about too much of it, you know, that, that comes up a lot. And that's something that I, I've written about, um, in, in the past with, with regards to how, for anyone who doesn't know, I'm transgender. And so that's, that's an issue that I don't necessarily like writing about, but it's everywhere. And after the 2016 election, I remember there were so many pieces that were just like, Hillary was, a. Uh, 
you know, would talk too much about transgender bathrooms or, you know, what, whatever the case is. And that was just that kind of in both, you know, in print and on TV and, you know, on cable, you had those sorts of arguments being made and they were kind of just being made without any supporting data. And I mean, happened in, in 2018 and 2020, 2020, there was a, on MSNBC, you had Claire McCaskill go on there and this was on election night. I remember watching and she was saying like, maybe Biden focused too much on transgender issues. And it's like, what, what are you talking about? You like, we have to focus on the bread and butter and the, the kitchen, the meat and potatoes, kitchen table issues. And like, yeah, but I mean, when you would actually look at breakdowns of like what candidates were talking about, you know, on the trail in their ads, stuff like that, it was like, you know, candidates talked about the economy more than anything else. Candidates, you know, candidates, you know, whether you're talking about Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden or anyone else, you know, talked about immigration and trade and, you know, all of the all of the issues that you hear pundits go, that's what people want to hear more about. The reason that you hear about the other the other issues, the the big focus on those, you know, unless there's something specific that's driving candidate attention to that, like like in this past election with um overturning the uh overturning Roe versus Wade. I mean, obviously that that did make abortion a big topic that was being talked about on the campaign trail. But setting aside instances like like that, where there is just a, more of a normal political atmosphere out there, uh, the dis, you know the the perception of oh, candidate A is talking too much about transgender issues or LGBT rights or whatever issue that they get accused of talking too much about. Uh, it, it's usually just that that's what cable news tends to to focus on. They focus on these these issues that are that are you know, outside of the the mainstream that, that are not standard type, this is what you expect from a candidate. They focus on that and they talk about it more than you'll hear a candidate talk about it. And that is what I kind of find interesting about, about how cable news specifically, because you have to fill 24 hours of content every day, which is probably too much. <laughs> one of my, one of my, my issues with it is, is that that's kind of the reality of it. The the world is shaped, you know, the you can make any candidate sound super smart or sound like a complete fool or make it sound like they only care about issue X or, you know, what whatever, just because th- they choose the programming. They, you know, it, it gets, it gets, everything gets chopped up and fed back to us, you know, whether we're staring at podium, empty podiums of, of Donald Trump's campaign, like in, in 2016, you know, which I'm glad that it seems like people mostly realized that that was not the best use of airtime as elections followed after that. But, you know, I, I, I think that there's a lot of, it really goes underappreciated just how much the media, which again, you know, as we've kind of, you know, you and I both know is, is extremely broad term, but the information that we get about the world around us, you know, whether that comes from cable, whether that's in the newspaper or a website or social media, you know, like all of that stuff, it influences us in in different ways. And it's, it's, it's fed to us. It's not like 
we're all just getting a straight feed of what's happening in the world. We're getting what, you know, what Mark Zuckerberg decides we should be getting or what Chris Licht at CNN thinks we should be getting. You know, like these things are, these things matter. You said, for example, the transgender issues and when Claire McCaskill, I think in 2016, she, she, you mentioned that she blamed that, which is crazy because having worked on the other side for the RNC during that election, that wouldn't have even registered from the Republican perspective as a reason that the uh, race was won. And I say that as somebody who personally in my portfolio at the RNC had LGBTQ issues and literally I would have refused to say anything, but we did not at the RNC say throughout the whole election, did not put out one piece of opposition research, did not highlight it. And if anything, there was a move by the log cabin Republicans to get Trump, at least for lesbian and gay people, um, to be more open. And even you had the freaks like Milo. And I'm saying that because Milo is like a freak, not yes. because he's of the LGBTQ <laughs> community. He was pushing Trump to, um, but anyway, so that is just shocking to me. And, and it's interesting because this election now, I think the commentary is the Republicans lost because they're focusing on transgender issues too much. But my my question though is, we could do a whole show on that. Uh, but when you say they focus on it too much in regards to specifically cable news, is it the commentators like uh, Claire McCaskill, are they bringing this in on their own, or is it the business model, like you mentioned, Chris Licht, or whoever the same person is at MSNBC or Fox, um, and are is the station itself uh, driving this coverage because of the business model, or is there something else going on here? Why are quote unquote they focusing on these <laughs> issues that the candidates aren't? Sure, I that that's a great question, and and I think that. I, one of the one of the challenges right now in in just the the entire world of media, you know, if looking at the past couple of weeks, you've had, you know, CNN announces a bunch of layoffs, Washington Post announced layoffs, Protocol, the tech website just shut down. There is just this long list of places that that are that are laying people off right now. You know, when all all over the the news media sort of space, and I think that you know what that sort of speaks to is just that that challenge the, that exists to try to make news profitable and that is one of the one of those cra crazy kind of balances that that these the people who run these like I don't I don't envy anyone who has to make decisions that are meant to take something that that informs us and find the balance between that and business, what makes sense business-wise to, to talk about, to cover, to, you know, the the way things are are dealt with. And obviously, you know, people people who are in the newsroom, in on the news side of things, they're they're not they're not supposed to be concerned about the business side of things. That they're, you know, the the whole idea is to wall that off, to make the business decisions separate from the uh, the news decisions and the editorial decisions, but uh, inevitably those the, the, it all comes together because if if you're not getting ratings and you're not getting advertisers, then you're not gonna you're not gonna succeed. And in, in in this sort of cutthroat, extremely fractured media landscape, because if you think about it, you, it used to be there were you know like. 
four four TV channels. You know, like you could there was just a handful of news outlets, and that's where you got all the info you, you need. But now, I mean, I, I could find something. I could find some website somewhere that that will tell me everything that I believe is totally correct, and ev- everyone who's who's wrong is totally wrong, and it, it makes for this weird sort of space where you have to figure out how to walk that line if you want to have a successful business as you know during the after the 2020 election remember when fox news called it um called it for biden it was on on uh, we had chris Steyerwall on this show and he was the one who called arizona yeah yeah and then he he lost his job later but after that happened i was I was curious. I was checking the, I was checking out, you know, what the, what the responses to that on, on social media were. And, you know, I'm, I'm, you've probably, probably noticed this too, but during, during the 2020 election, there were, there were definitely some people on the right who had, who were really trying to say like, Fox is, Fox is liberal now. Fox has moved to the left. Fox is, and basically it was because they weren't Newsmax and they weren't OAN. Trump was saying that, Parker. Yeah, Trump was saying that. That was one and, of his things. Yeah. And and I mean, in, in his case, that that was his, you know, he was always, you know, he'll he'll say anything to to get it, get something to to his advantage. You know, he was he was insulting Fox and hoping he's full of shit. Yes. That's what he does. That's that's nothing new. But uh, you know, so after that, you see Fox started going pretty heavy into like advertising like their opinion stuff like after the election they had an ad campaign that was focused on focused on tucker carlson and laura ingram and sean hannity like we'll tell you what we'll don't worry you know it was basically like we're trying to reassure you we'll be there remember how we were during the obama administration we're gonna be just like that again you know (laughs) like like that's that sort of thing so I i think that a lot of this you know, is just just that selling people selling people on news, which can be extremely dry and boring, uh, doesn't doesn't necessarily pay the bills. I mean, the more sensational, the more people pay attention. The more it confirms their priors, the more they'll keep watching. Like if you tune tune into TV and every single night they're like, "Hey, that thing you believe, you're wrong." You know, like you're not going to feel as, as energized about checking it out because most people watch TV for entertainment and not so much like I'm here to learn about the world, you know? So I think that there's, there's that aspect of it where you start to have all of these weird little incentives to try to, to try to move things to, to placate your audience, to keep them happy. Cause you don't want to lose your audience. You don't want Fox clearly was a little worried about losing some of its audience to Newsmax and OAN. And so it started, you know, it, it started kind of pushing back on that. And the, the voice voices of reason over there, you had, you know, Shep, Shep Smith, you know, he was, he was out because he pushed back on something that Tucker Carlson said. And you, you kind of saw that happen, you know, over, over a span of months. And it's, it's been going on ever since all over the place. And, and then, and then when Newsmax, uh, called the election, when they finally did, when they finally acknowledged it on, um, when they finally acknowledged it on Twitter, 
there were all these responses that were just like, you sold out, you sold out. Like it was like mid December <laughs> at that point when they finally were like, okay, the electoral college has met and Bi- Biden has, has the votes. And there were people who were just angry who were like, how dare you? How dare you say that he won? And it's like, people want people want to be entertained. And, and so they, they kind of, you know, they, they build their own bubbles, but also these, these news organizations, you know, whether you're talking Fox or CNN or MSNBC or anywhere else, you know, it's like, they need, know that they need to keep their viewers happy as well. Um, because happy viewers are viewers who come back and, and keep watching your channel. It's really kind of a weird incentive structure. So considering the business model and incentive structure is perverse in that it's in some ways, I think you would argue, I would argue, everybody would argue it's distorting uh, the objective facts, whether it be the way the facts are presented or the emphasis on those specific facts and the airtime given to them. And considering uh, that it's because the, the money that needs to be made is there any type of positive role that cable news media can play in our political ecosystem? Or is this something that we should turn off? And I say that as somebody who loves a good horse race coverage. And, I, and I'm embarrassed to admit that my co-host who's in Cutter right now would just roll his eyes and they'd fall out the back of his head because he hates it. <laughs> so I do get my fix every once in a while of cable news. Um, but should we just be turning it off? Or is there a, realistically speaking, Parker, not in our, you know, with our magic wands and, and hopeful, is there a constructive role that it can play? Yeah, I think so. I think it's possible. Uh, it, it may be unlikely, but but possible in this in the current structure that there is. The one thing... Um, in seeing CNN's news about CNN's layoffs, for instance, recently, one of the things that was said there, and it's hard to tell how much of this is just company tr- trying to make things sound better than they are and how much of it's like the actual plan. But one of the groups of people that, that CNN was was making big cuts to one of the one of the sections was were the, the paid contributors, the, the people who show up on air, the Rick Santorum types who, which that doesn't make sense. He's, he's been gone for a while, but he said something racist. <laughs> yeah. The, the, the people in the people in those roles who, you know, former politicians and analysts and, you know, stuff like that, where they're kind of brought on to talk about all the subjects, all the topics. That is the part of cable news that drives me up a wall because we don't learn anything. The people on there brought on to talk about, you know, whatever the let's see, van jones for instance you, you bring van jones on to talk about every single issue under the sun and it's just it okay maybe he he's an expert in certain areas but not others but why is he always on here to talk why why are we just hearing what are essentially random opinions of, of, of varying you know varying levels of being informed you know why are why are we hearing a hearing these from from you know a panel of seven people or whatever because he's I think really I, good at talking he, is, he was <laughs> he was in one of the purge movies i like to i like to was point he? that I out i did not know that he was in the movie the first purge where 
Really? I missed that. Off the, I will go back. Not not the not the first Purge movie, but the movie that is called The First Purge, which was like the third. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, got got to keep it weird. It was it was the prequel. So I think that there's there's an opportunity to to go back to j- doing awesome reporting primarily, keeping that the focus. On the plus side, it gets away from a lot of the partisan stuff that happens. It gets away from the talking points and the talking heads. I mean, because that's what you're essentially getting rid of. However, you're, you know, you do lose the arguments that go viral on social media and stuff like that, um, which again speaks to some of the bad incentive structures that exist. And one of them that will stick with me, and I thought it was funny and cool when I listened to it, but now I just think he's kind of a scumbag, was when Rick Wilson was on Don Lemon's show on CNN, he told a Trump person he'd gut him like a fish. And yeah. that clip just went viral. And like as I've matured, I'm like, this guy just sucks. But that <laughs> that's just making your point, though, because that went viral, and that's what I remember yeah. from it. Don't remember what they were talking about, but I do no. remember that. Yeah, and it... it, it it's one of those things where you watch these things and you're either feeling like this rush of, you know, rush of endorphins because you, you, you agree with what you're seeing. You're like, yeah, tell them, you know, or that's you're, what you're, I felt too. <laughs> yeah. Or on the flip side, someone will be sitting there stewing in anger. Like these sorts of emotions are so detached from the idea of learning what's happening in the world today. You know, like that is that is the entertainment aspect of it. So I am cautiously optimistic about what could happen with, with cable news at some point if it shifts more away from that. Now, that said, I have no clue what, what CNN is actually going to do. Um, I, was, I was kind of pleasantly surprised that when, um, when they moved Don Lemon to the morning show, because his his show was it was an opinion show. I mean, his 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 primetime show was an opinion show. And then in the run up to the midterms, they had Jake Tapper have a primetime show where where it was it was not opinion. It was just it was it was news. There were there were like report. He would do really interesting reports. I was going to ask you about him because he's my favorite on cable news because I think he's the most serious. And maybe that's because I like his perspective and point of view, and that's my bias. But I also uh, think that generally speaking, he's the one that has the fortitude to ask the difficult questions. He's Whether it's him or his producers, uh, probably a combination thereof, they think of the tough follow-ups and they're asking them on the spot. Um, so I did want to get your opinion about that and and his show in the lead up to the the election there. Yeah, absolutely. I, I I think that that was it was a really interesting experiment that CNN kind of did by putting putting a show there, and I mean it's it was very similar in 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 format to you know his the the lead his his other show, uh, but I really I really liked it because I felt I watched it and felt smarter, felt as though I had learned something, which is not something that I that I typically take away from from any sort of cable news. Uh and I and I I, I really do appreciate uh his his approach to journalism just generally. I don't always agree with his his takes and you know because you know he he does express his views on things but but still kind of keeps you know he really will press people all over the 
political spectrum on on issues and get you answers that that others don't. I mean, one thing that that will always stick in my head is this interview he did with Trump in 2016, where it was right after Trump had made that comment about how the judge who was overseeing the Trump University case, the Mexican American judge. Yeah, it was like he can't he can't be. You know, we can't trust him to do this. He's a Mexican. It's like, oh my God, what the hell? You know, so, so Tapper asks, asks him about that. Like, and, and Trump kind of like dodges and he goes, well, well, the the case should have been over. And he started, you know, he tries to pivot to talking about Hillary's emails or whatever, you know, and Tapper just kept following up and he followed up. It was something like, I think it was like 16 or 17 times on that same question. Wow. I did not know that. While he never really got a satisfactory answer out of Trump, he didn't move on. And it was so clear that that Trump was just not not liking that. He was not having that. He's he's used to how cable news tends to be, where if you don't answer, they go, well, OK, we'll move on. And and then, you know, you get the question that you want and you go from there. So I really appreciated that, especially given that it it came came with a cost. I mean, do you know how many times he's interviewed Trump ever since then? Zero. Yeah. Zero. He has never, ever interviewed Trump since. And, you know, he's interviewed, obviously, he interviewed a lot of people in the Trump administration. But Donald Trump has never sat for an interview with him. And that, I think, is, you know, after that, that one, which... You know, I think that might be one of the best things that, you know, as as a journalist, you know, would be to have people who, you know, who are, you know, bullshitters who will go, I don't want to talk to this person because they're going to ask me, they're going to ask me hard questions. You know, I I make them afraid of you in that sort of way in in this, like, it's going to be a challenge kind of way. And, And, you know, when you're talking like, uh, you know, when you're talking about so- someone who's who, the president of the United States or running for president, yeah, they should be able to sit down for interviews that are uncomfortable and answer difficult questions. And I would, you know, and and the ones, the interviews that we'll all look back on and, and think about years from now will not be the ones that where it's conservative news group, like, lobbing softballs to Trump. No, it'll be Jonathan Swan interviewing Trump and and pressing him on on various, you know, various issues. It will be the Jake Tapper interview. You know, like those are the ones that will, they stick out because they're rare. That's bad. It's bad that those are rare. You know, I I would rather I want someone to just really not let up. That's what I think good journalism really is. You know, I'd love to see candidates just kind of torn to shreds, (laughs) you know, like here's, here's everything. We're not going to let you go through your talking points. You're going to stay on topic or we're going to have a very awkward conversation, you know, like that sort of thing. And I think that that can be, you know, that, that can be great. And I, I am glad to see that sort of work rewarded in various ways. Like I may not always agree with Jonathan Swan or Jake Tapper, but but I, I can appreciate their their work, their their style of work. I was going to say, Parker, it sounds like you've come over to my side of the road and you've become a center left moderate. <laughs> center left the, moderate. The praise, the praise of uh, of uh, of these folks. So you're you're warming my heart. I'm going to get canceled. Insufficiently, <laughs> insufficiently far left. <laughs> 
No, I agree with everything you said. And, you know, we've done probably 300 of these shows with 40 or 50 members. It's hard. Uh, If you have a platform like CNN, though, where folks want to come on and get something from you, uh, then it, it should be easier. But doing these interviews, you can hear people starting to get frustrated and, and you're like, oh boy, they're just going to um, say, fuck this and hang up. But one one where we did that, and I thought the answer was great, was Congresswoman Nancy Mace. We It was the day after or the day of Kevin McCarthy got caught lying and the New York Times came out and they're like, we have recordings of what you said about President Trump. And there was this whole thing. Um, so we asked her, like, why do you support him? And we asked her a couple follow-ups, like, how can you trust anything he says when he's a known liar? How can the American people trust? And she basically ultimately gave a good, heartfelt, honest answer, which was, he's supporting me in a tough primary, so I support him, which is like, okay, that's that's honest. fine. Like, that's, I, you know, That's what we want. I don't care what the answer is, just make it an honest one. Yeah. Um, I don't have to agree with it. And I, I think that our media would be a lot better if if folks took that approach. And I and I highlight that one to say that's one example where we've probably failed 300 other times. So um but, <laughs> but I understand what you're what you're saying there. And I and I wanted to just to close up the loop on cable news, one of my best friends, probably my best friend in Washington, DC is Andrew Lawrence and he hangs out with my dog Brady. We go to sports games together. We, we hang out a lot. Um, and one thing that he hates, and you hate this too, is both sidesism. Yes. So I was hoping you could briefly get into, especially on cable news, um, what is both sidesism? Because it's not having a Republican and Democrat on. So could you just get into what it is? And for people that don't read The Present Age, which is one of two substacks that I am a paying member of. Could you just get into it for for the audience about what it is and and why it's so frustrating? Sure. So essentially, both sidesism is this this sort of idea that that on every issue, on every topic, there will there will be two equally good I, positions, and either could be fine, either are correct. We we can't say, you know, some people say the sky is blue, and and but others say that it's it's actually made of cheese. I don't, you know, like these sorts of things, like if you treat both of those things as though they're, they're both valid positions, then, then that, that is kind of, you know, an exaggerated version of both sidesism, you know, but, but for instance, you know, a real life example would be um, how climate change was covered for a very long time where you would have, uh, you would have stories on TV and, you know, and, and in papers that would go, well, on one hand, you have uh, 97% of climate scientists, and on the other, you have 3% of climate scientists. And, and Louis Gomer. Yeah, and Louis Gomer. And so we're going to hear from someone who works for an oil company. <laughs> you know, like like these sorts of things where where you, you give both of those equal weight. And on one hand, like I can, I can see a reason that that might be where that might be good. If, if you really, you know, if you're, if you, uh, you know, to, to get into one of our, our, our vocabulary words here, you know, you want to, want to have a heterodox approach to, uh, to, to everything happening in the world, you know, like, and you want to try to dig into something a little bit and maybe expose some flaws, uh, you know, that that's, kind of the dream of, of journalists, journalism is to, to 
get in there and find some answers and change the world through asking questions and stuff like that. But, you know, I could see there being situations where you're like, sure, an overwhelming majority of people think A, but let's hear the point, the argument for B. And that can be done in a, in a smart, thoughtful way. But, you know, that, that might mean uh, making, making it clear repeatedly that the majority believe A. And, you know, and these are experts who say this. And we're going to really try to poke holes in, in point B, but, you know, we're going to let them have their, have their say here. You know, like that is one thing. But too often it ends up being like, all right, so we're going to read the press release from, you know, this uh, oil company and we're going to, uh, you know, get a get a quick soundbite from a from a climate scientist like th- those sorts of things. And it's it's just obnoxious because it requires a level of of, of reading and, and viewing comprehension that most people don't put into their media consumption. That just doesn't just doesn't happen. Most people, when they see an article, they don't click past the headline. They they see a headline, that's it. You know, there was there was a study that it was, God, it was like, I think it was like from like 2010. So it's so outdated right now. But <laughs> it was it was a study that 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 found that something like 60% of people who got their news online were only looking at headlines. They weren't looking at the whole articles. They weren't reading them start to finish. And the thing is that people who who work, you know, work in media, you know, whether pretty much at any level, they know that that's how it works. They know that that most people will only go with what the headline says. You know, if you if your headline just says like, here's this controversial thing that that has has a it's divisive and it has people split. You're going to kind of assume that it's it's a 50-50 split, not a 97-3 split, <laughs> you know? So so that sort of thing, that sort of framing, you know, a lot of that, uh, a lot of that is a failure of how you write headlines and how you, how you really kind of set up stories. And I think that, you know, a few years ago, I wrote a, I wrote a piece that was just like, headlines are broken. We've got to rethink this because... T- for the most part, a lot of headlines were written in, in this, you know, and I know I've shifted from TV to, to print. No, that's okay. That's where we're going. Headlines on news stories were kind of written in, in a way that, that they would be in a newspaper, you know, and, and they never changed when it, when it switched to the internet. You know, in a newspaper, when you're reading, you know you're on the opinion pages. You know, when, when you get there, it says opinion all over the place. And you see the headline and immediately below the headline without you having to click or turn a page or do anything else, you start seeing the article, which usually gives you some additional clues. So like the information we take in, you know, our, we, we kind of start factoring it all in in looking at just this portion of a page. And that is already better than seeing that same exact headline just floating on a, on a tweet or on Facebook or on, or even just on a website, you know, it's headlines have, have been written for this print media world that has shifted so much to digital. You know, most people aren't going out and buying the print New York times. They're going to New York, nytimes.com. You know, that's, 
kind of the reality of it. Or they're just scrolling. And I think your 60% stats probably even worse now because, and I'm guilty of this sometimes too, is just scrolling through Twitter and seeing a journalist post an article and then you see the headline and, and it's like, um, it's stunning, but you get people responding to the article and they'll say, oh, this based on the premise of the headline, this is terrible. How could you? And then the journalist responds, did you read the article? Question mark. I made the exact opposite point. Like it says the exact opposite thing. So, so I totally hear you and I agree with you. Um, before we go any deeper, I was hoping that we could get into specifically. So cable news, I think we've, uh, discussed the business model. I think that we mentioned it's 24 hours a day. So it's largely focused on breaking news um, and providing a visual uh, component to whatever the information is. What type of role uh, ideally does print journalism fill? And I'm specifically not Substack. We'll get to that. I'm thinking the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, um, the credible fourth estate institutions. It, it has to be different from your perspective than what, what cable news does. Sure. Oh, absolutely. I think one thing that pr- the print media just generally uh, does really well uh, or can do really well is, uh, is uh, investigative re- reporting. I mean, these like long, deep dive type pieces, that is that is what they do best. That That is not typically the realm of cable news that is you know that because it it lends itself so much better to you know this these stories that you can you can put out over the course of several days and and put them in a you know put them in their own special section and and to put put them on the front page you know like all of these different things to to kind of highlight different issues um and really get deep into the into the weeds with a lot of this stuff because you know, especially if you're writing about something that has, you know, a ton of facts and figures like that doesn't lend itself well to podcasts or radio or TV, uh, m- much better for, you know, looking at a, a website with a, with a great, uh, you know, New York times and wall street journal, both have really great, uh, visual infographics. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Like, like really immersive kind kind of things that they've done great, great work with, um, and I think that that is a type of type of innovation, and in, in, you know, and how these places that do these these deep dive report reports, you know, um, the the Wall Street Journal example I'm thinking of is the from last year the the Facebook papers thing that they had, where it was just like a a big multi day breakdown of a lot of what was happening inside Facebook, and it was very interesting, and and it was framed in such a way that was um, that really lent itself well to, to a newspaper as, as opposed to, you know, uh, t- Twitter or, or TV or, you know, Substack. <laughs> so that, I, I, I think that's kind of the, the big role that those institutions can play, but it's, it's so tricky when, when so much of, uh, you know, I, th- I think that when when people look at what pays the bills and what what drives traffic and what drives subscriptions, you know, a lot of times it ends up being the the opinion stuff, the the stuff that you know that's that's kind of the 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 filler, the can the candy that that pays the bills, so you can afford to do the deep dive investigations. You know, I was I was just gonna say that you know if you're running your own Substack, you 
you can't just just spend your time on these investigations because even at news outlets, we had Ken Vogel on the show. It's a it's a money sink. It's a money pit yeah. because you have to you know you have these large investigative teams, and we were talking about downsizing. Um, that has been something that has been downsized across the country, and you really just have these bastions like the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times. When you were mentioning everything, I was thinking of the investigative journalism they did on Tucker Carlson, and they had, um, I think it was Nick Confessori. Um, Anyways, they had like infographics about the times he used extreme language around immigrants, and there was red bubbles, and it's just coming to my mind right now in, in a very visual manner, which not great for a podcast because it's hard to describe uh, the the picture that that we're both pulling up in our brains. Um, but but that is to say, folks love to criticize the New York Times, and right now we're extolling their virtues on investigative journalism and um, leaving access journalism aside. So leaving the political reporting, which is also very valuable for a variety of reasons. Um, when we're criticizing the New York Times, when you're criticizing the New York Times on the present age. Um, is that because of the opinion section or is it because of the the access journalism? Explain where you get most of your angst and agita when just reading the New York Times and saying, this is shit. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I, I think a lot of it. So first off, you know, it's like I do think that um, the opinion section is kind of kind of a mess because they, they haven't really there. After the 2016 election, there, there was this kind of push to tr- to try to uh, understand Trump voters. So so you had so they were like, we're going to go out, we're going to and I and, and this is kind of a mistake that I think a lot of places fell into where they were like, we want to understand Trump voters, so we're going to go out and hire some people who are who are more conservative than than we typically would hire, and we're going to pay so for the them New- to go on a diner safari. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so so the New York Times goes and goes out and hires uh Brett Stevens and Barry Weiss uh from from the Wall Street Journal's uh, opinion pages. And that would be that would be, you know, great. Uh it, except for the fact that neither of them supported Trump. They were yes, they're conservatives, but they 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 were not Trump supporters. So so any goal of trying to understand Trump supporters and to appeal to Trump supporters probably like all that you ended up doing there, all that the times ended up doing there was kind of just making their opinion page more conservative and, and not doing whatever sort of outreach they think that they're, that they were doing at the time. And so I think that that's kind of, you know, opinion pages. I think a lot of the times what they do is they, they suffer from the same challenges that the big TV panels suffer from where you have people who aren't experts on topics talking about those topics. <laughs> you know, you have, what was it? There was, there was one time Brett Stevens was writing about, he, he had a whole thing about how people were mean to him on Twitter and he got mad and found that someone called, someone called me a bed bug and then he deleted his Twitter. It was a whole thing. And it's just like, why is this being printed in the New York times? You know, like what is the paper of record is talking about like Twitter meanies. So many like opinion pieces should really just be conversations with therapists and not you know, not columns, but, but too often that's kind of what you get. But also I think that, you know, you also kind of nailed the, the other aspect of this, which is the, the access aspect of it, which, which comes from a place of the, the media being so fragmented these days. Like if, if you, uh, if you look at what, you know, the, the formation of the white house correspondence association, their, their origin story 
was, uh, and oh God, I hope I'm not getting this wrong, but it, I think it was president Wilson had, um, like was basically threatening to, to not, to, to exclude some, some, some outlets essentially from, from briefings. And it was really all of these, all of these like journalists who covered the white house banding together and being like, you can't cut them out or we're all going. And so that was kind of the, the threat. That was the, that was the way to have a little bit of leverage. Like you need us to get your message out to the people and we're not going to let you mistreat our, our colleagues here. And that I think was, was really interesting and really um, important at the time. However, you know, as time goes on now, again, with, with all of the various outlets, you're starting to see, we're starting to sort of enter this age of, uh, of uh, politicians just realizing they don't need the press, don't need media, uh, don't need mainstream media, at least. And one example of that is Ron DeSantis. I mean, he it had a thing at the, like, I forgot, was some sort of convention in Florida over the summer. Was it CPAC? No, it wasn't CPAC. It was like the sunshine stuff. It was something that the Republican, the Florida Republican Party put on. Okay. And basically, they just rejected press requests from all sorts of papers. Like New York Times, no, you can't come. Associate Press, no. Yeah, I think Politico got in. And, but other than that, it was a lot of just, it was just right-wing media covering it. And it, they were they were saying like, no, we're locking you out, that we're not going to have you in here doing this. And it's interesting because we're at this point where, yeah, he, he doesn't need to necessarily, you know, do interviews with the New York Times. He doesn't have to talk to the Washington Post. He can just talk to friendly outlets. You know, that's that's what Donald Trump mostly did. That's what, you know, he, Trump would do occasional things with mainstream outlets because I think he felt like he had to. But I don't know that that's necessarily going to keep being the case. So to try to to try to avoid that, you have you have places that are that are trying to be a little more friendly to candidates to try to be like, no, 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 you can trust us to not write bad things about you, which already you're starting to kind of affect the 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 balance here the incentive structure here and and you end up in that same sort of place that you know that people are on the business end where you're like if i if i'm too harsh what if they don't what if they won't give me an interview or if if i write something negative will they will they stop talking to our outlet completely and so when uh when cbs hired mick mulvaney to be you know, like if you think about the the things that Mick Mulvaney said when he was uh, in Trump's White House, you know, he said, uh, well, first he, of course, wrote that Wall Street Journal op-ed that was said, like, if Trump loses, he'll concede gracefully. That was, that did not hold up. You know, he's, he's the same one who that when uh, Trump was being impeached for the first time over uh, extorting Ukraine for, to try to get them to investigate Biden, he said uh, he told your journalists to get over it, <laughs> which was like, come on. And then he and he's also the one that in February 2020, like he said that the only reason that the press was cared about uh, the the coronavirus was was because it was the hoax of the day. So like those are three things that are just so, so very, very wrong on a on a journalism sort of level. 
And then CBS goes and hires him. And there was the Washington Post, you know, obtained a recording that basically was like, hey, uh, we think the Republicans are going to probably win in the midterms and we need to make sure that we have some ins over there. You know, we have to make sure that we have access. And it's just, it's it's a losing proposition. It's it's a difficult sort of, uh, you know, it's a, it's a difficult game that they have that they have to play and i understand why but at in the end i think what it ends up doing is it creates kind of a a credibility vortex like vortex down to nothing you know you you start kind of chipping away at it you know when you start elevating people like mick mulvaney and putting putting him on tv and you know hiring reporters who will who will be a little little gentle with certain candidates so as not to to lose them uh, but in the end, you you kind of have to hope that that there are enough outlets willing to to take that sort of stand that that the White House Correspondents Association in its in its very beginning did to you know try to try to keep keep credibility in the front because the the issue with people not trusting the press isn't going to get better by just trying to trying to make politicians happy Pol- politicians will never be happy. They will no, always no. want and things to they, only unless you're their propaganda outlet. Yeah. And, yeah, exactly. and that's kind of what political um PR is. And and just a quick story anecdote on Mick yeah, Mulvaney. So my former boss uh, when I was a Republican was Tim Hillscamp and he was a Catholic Republican but Freedom Caucus. And this is back in 2014, 2015 when Mick Mulvaney was there. And anyways, we were drinking at Tortilla Coast, which is no longer there. And it was a fundraiser for Congressman Hill's camp. I believe the Coke Industries were there and maybe they were even throwing it. But me and Congressman Mulvaney got into an argument and it was a heated argument. And this was like my first week or month on the job. And we were going back and forth at each other. And this is just to show you that he, in my opinion, he really does believe this shit. Um, We were arguing about Greg Hardy who for everybody in the audience is a former defensive end. So he's like 6'6", 250 pounds, pure muscle for the Carolina Panthers. And ultimately he got in trouble, was found guilty on a bench trial of beating the shit out of his like five foot nothing girlfriend at the time. And the pictures of the violence that he inflicted, this world-class athlete turned into an MMA fighter actually on this woman were disgusting and nobody was defending him. No, and eventually the Panthers let him go. Mick Mulvaney was sitting across at a table to me, a friendly staffer, and he was defending Greg Hardy saying, oh, no. no, my brother, South Carolina, he knows the owner, Jerry Richardson. Oh. Later, Jerry Richardson had to sell the team because he got in trouble for racist statements against black people, might have been black players. Um, but Mick Mulvaney was adamant that that Greg Hardy was innocent and and that there's nothing wrong there and it just goes to show you like I, I think that there's some type of conspiracy theory going on where he thought that the media was um, contriving something to ostracize this player that he had the inside scoop on but he was like one of the only people at the time defending this guy and he was a leader of the Freedom Caucus which went on to literally dethrone Speaker John Boehner and help choose the next uh, speaker of the house. But that is just to show that his views are genuinely um, out there. And, and if CNN's only hiring those views, not to have them 
on the air, but to get access. And as a result, you have these views on the air, then the system kind of is, I would argue, broken. Like you're yeah, saying. Yeah. And and I, I think you meant CBS. At, at, Sorry. At the end what did I say? CNN? CNN. But <laughs> okay. Yeah. But yeah. And yeah, I remember with, with Greg Hardy, that, that whole thing where he ended up getting a, uh, getting signed by the Cowboys and then yep. that, then I think he got suspended again and was out, but because he, he's a freak. Yeah. I mean like that, that's the thing. I remember those pictures and I remember it being, uh, it was bad. It was really bad. I mean, you know, that was, cause that was right around, I think the same time as the, the Ray Rice thing with the elevator, which, yep. Yep. uh, it so I, I think there, there was maybe this, this sense that it was like, Oh, you know, everyone's under attack and, you know, and now they're, coming for this but don't don't worry we got to the we got to the bottom of the elevator thing because um you know uh robert Mueller was on the case which is why nothing ever came of that so (laughs) oh well i went to robert Mueller's high school and he's the reason why i got into public service when when it's it's just so funny that it's just like when when he got named special counsel i was like the guy who screwed up the the ray rice investigation that was that was my (laughs) The guy who the guy who had a video of Ray Rice beating his girl, beating his wife, and, and, and couldn't find anything. Did on he that? have okay. the video? I, I don't. I, I don't. I don't, I don't remember. remember but. but I, I, I just, I, I like reminding people. I'm like, yeah, no, he was the same guy who's, who's, who's behind that. When, when you know, people were really like, no, it's Mueller time. It's like, mm, it's not. <laughs> well, resistance Twitter is, and oh that's yeah, that, where I'll take you know, it. That, that's I mean, a whole that's, different. That's a whole. It's a fan. Thing. It's like a fandom rather than like a you know. It's people cheering for. It's like it's like if I showed up here and I was like, the Cubs are going to win the World Series this year. It's like I you know I could be forgiven for being for being a Cubs fan and optimistic about my team, but that would be just me trying to play up my team and not like actually and, look at the reality of it. And there's not, from my perspective, okay the the end game may be different but that type of fandom isn't too different that fervor i guess i would say mm-hmm. sure. isn't too different from the fervor that we see following around the big substackers and yeah. the heterodox thinkers right mm-hmm. uh i'm thinking glenn greenwald he i, I don't know what happened uh with with the intercept mm-hmm. i think he got fired or something or he quit um but then he creates the substack and he I'm assuming he's making millions of dollars at it. Matt Taibbi, I saw somewhere, is making $2 million a year uh, on Substack. Um, then Barry Weiss, you know, there was a, I think there was a New York Times article or, or some some mainstream article saying how successful she is at um, making money at this stuff. And these people, for the most part, are just, uh, from my perspective, I don't read them all the time, but they're conspiracy theory adjacent or conspiracy theory period um, and they're speaking to a bunch of people who just generally do not trust the establishment, do not trust all the media that we just spoke to. So why are they able to leverage the platform of Substack, which you have, I'll name your show later, so it's not associated with this stuff, which you have um, uh, your own outlet that's that's very successful on. What, why does it why is it so conducive to these you know crypto freaks and all the other people? Well, I, th- I think that, the the type of content that does really well on Substack is is opinion content. I mean, it's it's the uh, which which is why it's it's such a, a a challenge to to why there haven't really been any big Substackers who have come out with like like really great 
uh, investigative journalism because because it's difficult. It takes time. That was kind of kind of the the initial idea, I think, for for like Hunter Walker, who he was at Yahoo for a while, but then he started his own his own Substack, uh, and then he would do these investigate. He was doing some investigative reporting into the January sixth and the planning of that, and he had a lot of those things. But then when it came time to publish those, he tended to publish them at like Rolling Stone because it got the distribution that went along with being from Rolling Stone. So like that's kind of the challenge where it's it's hard to actually turn that into a platform for uh, for investigative work because there are better options to to put it out there. Now, when it comes to churning out some opinions, because you know, do, doing an investigation where you have to do a bunch of interviews and all of that, that takes time, that takes energy, you know, but if, you know, Glenn Greenwald gets upset about something, he sees someone online who makes him mad and he decides he wants to write, write a newsletter about it, he can sit down and churn one out in an hour and send it off. And I, I think that it's, it's that sort of, uh, you know, it's like the, an extension of social media more than it is a, uh, you know, a, a real, place place for like full on journalism you know and i think that that is one of the reasons that they they resonate with people is that they write opinions that people agree with you know the the people who follow them do so because not because like they're great writers or anything i mean they're they're all good or above average writers probably not that hard to be an above average writer right yeah you know it's like they are fine writers they are i'm an above average writer parker (laughs) (laughs) like like they're fine writers and they they, and they all had pre-existing followings that that helps too you know obviously uh but but that's it really comes down to you know people the the think about how how content succeeds on on twitter the stuff that you see the 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 voices you you constantly hear you know every every day for instance i see see this this nick adams dude in my oh, timeline because God. people can't can't resist retweeting him even though he's just a weird right wing troll he is a troll and it's kind of funny some of it the starbucks stuff <laughs> yeah he'll just be like i was in a starbucks and and like people aren't taking their kids to hooters enough these days like that's his whole thing and i'm just like and then i and i didn't even get a coffee and i just left I just walked out. <laughs> this person, their name badge, it said they slash them. And I was like, not today. You know, like, like that, that sort of stuff, like standing up for America. And I just left. It's like, no asshole. You just didn't get yourself a coffee, but he's also making it up. Yeah. Like, so just like, just how that sort of stuff is not great <laughs> tweeting or great writing. You're not learning anything, but it gets a lot of, a lot of, uh, interactions it's it's kind of the same, you know. When people say incendiary things on online, I mean Charlie Warzel, who um, he was at the New York Times, then he started a, a Substack called Galaxy Brain, and then the Atlantic hired him to take Galaxy Brain to the Atlantic newsletter. Like when, or when that, yeah, when when that happened, um, he he had this. There was one time he has one old post where basically. He he got like Glenn Greenwald got like angry at him online for something because he criticized him. And then he wrote like a, a post that was just about that little online argument. And he said it was like the best day for his his new new subscriptions because it it was controversial and, and it and it brought his annual revenue up. And, you know, it's like that's, that's so 
it's it's one of those things where you try to figure out what what the balance is between like what you want to write about and what what you care about and what what you need to write about in order to to sort of keep you keep yourself afloat and you know i mean maybe they, they maybe they just genuinely like writing about that's where I was going next is it well first off I have like 2000 Twitter followers and Glenn Greenwald has gotten mad at me and done a tweet thread <laughs> yeah, on me yeah. so he, <laughs> that's that's insane sometimes he doesn't seem to have a have a great like understanding <laughs> of like, the like proportional response I find it hilarious it's like dude you're such an asshole if if I'm getting with my 2000 followers if if I'm the big bad liberal establishment which you know so fuck Glenn Greenwald I need to say that very clearly and unequivocally why do they write this stuff so do these and specifically like TB and Weiss with the Twitter files which is nothing it it's completely nothing um why are they doing this now you know to be clear there there may be something eventually uh I don't know but but so far so far after the the first round of it or whatever it's like there's there's nothing like super newsworthy and I always want to like I'm open to like if there's a big scandal like that's cool let it let me know let everyone know but it seems so politically motivated uh I I think I think they they write the things they do and they say the things they do because a they they believe them but okay but also but also i, I you know it's it's financial it works out for them financially i mean if you look at what taibi's like uh his his twitter follower count went up by like seven hundred thousand followers and and yeah he's now at like 1.3 million Holy or something he was at five hundred thousand before so i mean it's just massive it it's it, it's massive and the thing is that there is no um you know there there is such a thing as as bad press but but it's not necessarily the case you know the big game here is um name recognition and and trying to trying to get your get your voice out to as many people as possible because even if only 1% of the people who who hear your argument agree with it if you're if you're hitting a billion people like that's still a whole bunch you know like that is still you are still getting through to a massive crowd that now likes your work and will share your work and it will and it will help and it will build on it you know i i think about some sometimes i'll like uh i often try to avoid writing about issues about lgbtq issues and trans issues because they it's just it I find so much of it so obnoxious because so much of it I've written before, but I, I like to kind of tell people that sometimes it's like, like those will be the posts that do really well for me sometimes. And, you know, those will be the posts that sometimes get me uh, invited on podcasts or, or TV and, you know, and, and TV appearances help with the subscriptions and the podcasts help with the subscriptions, you know, like these sorts of things I find myself in like, have have you seen the movie the the nightmare before christmas like i feel like we everyone has i might have might have okay that's okay so What's so the in this movie in this movie you've got you've got jack skellington he is he is a skeleton he is the king of halloween town and so he tra- he but he's getting bored and so he accidentally travels to christmas town and he's like christmas is awesome and he sees it and he's like there's presents and i love it and everything's great so he goes back to Halloween town. He's like, we're going to do Christmas now. And <laughs> so he tries to sell the town on, on also doing Christmas in addition to Halloween, 
Like that's his thing. He's like, we're going to take over from Santa and we're going to do it. And the, the town is confused. The town's like, there aren't any spiders and there aren't any horrible goblins under the beds and stuff like that. Like, what? why? Why are we doing that? And he's like, oh, so he, he kind of like looks away and he's like, okay, I guess I better give them what they want. And then so he's like, he's like, Santa is a, has a big, mighty voice and, and claws for arms, you know, like, like he starts telling them what they want to hear because, you know, but it's all to get to his final goal of doing Christmas. And um, it doesn't work out for him in the no end. <laughs> they, they, he screws up Christmas, but, but that's kind of the, the sort of feeling I sometimes have when I'm, when I'm like, I guess, I guess I have to write about this thing. You know, there was a, Oh no, another bad op-ed about trans people. I suppose I should write, write about that. Or, Oh, I should address whatever issue. When, you know, I'd really rather be digging into, uh, you know, the state of news media as a whole, you know, as it's, it's all this, it's all this part of the same information ecosystem, which it just fascinates me. Um, But at the, at the same time, it's like, got to pay the bills and you got to try to, and, and obviously it's like, I only write things I believe and think about, but time time is limited you know and and one of the great things about writing a newsletter is like you can choose how to spend it i can decide okay i'm going to go heads down and and not write anything for 2 weeks and work on like a long piece but if i do that in that 2 week period i'm going to lose a lot of subscribers i'm going to have people who are paying subscribers who may go you're not putting out content i need to go which to be fair like that's fair. That that does totally make sense. You know, so there's that that balance you end up finding finding yourself in and all of the the sort of issues that we talked about before with like, you know, trying to do that balancing act of, you know, the wall between business and editorial when you are handling the whole thing yourself as someone who is, you know, writing a newsletter it it you end up having to take all of these all of these thoughts into um consideration but i mean i i don't think that any of them are saying anything that they don't agree with and i don't think that you know i think that that, that that's just you know who they are and and they're all extremely successful in their own own right i mean uh substack has like little badges for like different different levels of success it's like oh you have a you have hundreds of subscribers you have thousands of paid subscribers you have tens of thousands they're all on that tens of thousands level i'm sure i am at at the thousands level congratulations but i should mention that thousands means you hit 1000 <laughs> and then they just sort of round up from there so I, i'm one of them there you go thanks so i'm at least a tenth of a percent you you may be putting me over the edge there who's to say but uh yeah you know i I mean i i do i do like newsletters though i do like the the potential for them and just how they kind of shake things up a little bit but i all and i also like the fact that while i am on substack and while glenn greenwald matt taibbi and barry weiss all manner of other people are on there it's uh it's interestingly like siloed and not in a bad way like like i don't so like if you write like a blog for on like medium or something like you'll at the end of it it'll be like more like this and then it'll like recommend different uh 
uh, recommend different articles. And so like, it would always kind of suck to be like, why trans people should have rights, you know, and then get to the bottom and it's like more like this, Eric trans people should have no rights, you know, <laughs> and you're like, you're like, damn it. That's not what I want people to, that's the, you know, it's like, I understand why that, why it may be useful to have that sort of perspective, but at the same time, I don't want to be the one promoting it, you know? And so yep. that was actually one of the things that when I was making my, my, uh, my decision to, to leave, uh, media matters where I was, where I was working with, with Andrew Lawrence, among others. And that's how you first came to our attention on, on the show was I asked Andrew, Andrew, who should we have on the show? And I think he said, I can't even remember, maybe he connected us, but, um, he's like, yeah, oh, yeah, Parker he Malloy's great. okay, so there you go. He, he connected us. I was listening to, uh, it was the, you guys were doing a Twitter chat or Twitter, Twitter spaces, Twitter thing, spaces and, I, and with I, Andrew. I was just listening to it. Yeah. And then, and then we, we connected and I was on, I was on an episode of, uh, the podcast soon after. And then right after you, I didn't really know who he was. We had Eric Erickson on. <laughs> Eric Erickson. Which, so, which so we, back we to are, that medium where. <laughs> yeah. We, we, you know what we are. And as we are recording this on uh, Pearl Harbor day, I would, I would like to uh, also say sorry to, to Eric Erickson who uh, let's see. Yeah. It's the seventh anniversary of the time Eric Erickson tweeted growing up. I remember my parents never letting us have Asian food on December 7th. Oh. They were children of world war two. <laughs> and so he tweeted that seven years ago. Asian today. food. No, Asian never food, mind. Asian never food. mind. Yeah. Don't it, need to get any more specific than a giant <laughs> continent. Like Japan and China were on opposite sides of World War II. Never mind the racism, period. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and and so uh, Gawker at the time decided to reach out to his mom to be like, hey, is this true? And she's like, no. <laughs> like we. <laughs> so that makes it even worse. So... Just, I, I was thinking about that. I, I ended up tweeting that out. I tweeted that and the uh, the SpaghettiOs uh, Pearl Harbor Day post from nine years ago, where it's SpaghettiO holding a flag saying, take a moment to remember hashtag Pearl Harbor with us. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I, am, I'm, I miss when brands would just like <laughs> go nuts on social media, you know, like places that, that for a while they'd be like, yeah, let's have a 9-11 sale or so, you know, like yeah. that was always... <laughs> Always the the funniest. The, the, the last time we got that was uh the blackout. Oh, yeah. remember when all the brands virtue signaled and they just blacked out their profile for Juneteenth? Um, but yeah, sorry, that was <laughs> the Spaghettios one. Is yeah, the the Spaghettios one that is just burned into my brain for as long as I live. I'm gonna think of the spaghetti because people <laughs> people forget that and they they think that they post that on 9/11, but no, it was it was Pearl Harbor Day. And then Sean Spicer today said, well, this is a day that'll live in infamy. It's D-Day. <laughs> and someone's like, uh, D-Day is in June. Like, oh, yes. sorry. Remind, reminds me of when he, he uh, referred to concentration camps as Holocaust Center. <laughs> we shouldn't be laughing. I know, but stuff, at the same time, but... it's just like, how is this guy the press secretary? Well, well uh... here's the thing, just to close the loop on them and then to... to um, talk about your Substack, and then then we'll end here. Um, I, th <laughs> from my perspective, I was never a social conservative. I was always socially liberal, despite working for one of the most social conservative members of Congress, despite working for the RNC when Trump was being racist. And there was always this conflict in me, and I knew I was full of shit. And I would tell people that they're full of shit that I was working with because I just didn't believe it. And um, you know, obviously. You shouldn't probably do that. I, I would not change my time in those 
realms for anything because I was able to learn these movements. I mean, it shapes who you are. Yeah, it shapes who I am for the better, but also like now I understand where the modern GOP is because I was literally in the birthplace of the modern GOP with the Tea Party and all that hatred and shit. But um, when I look at these folks, I only have my perspective. So I think that they're full of shit and, and that they're doing this because they can't be that stupid because the, the second Twitter files and you tweeted something out today about this. The big news was that the general counsel of Twitter used to work at the FBI. And the big news was that Elon didn't know that until Sunday. But you tweeted out something showing that he knew that back in April. Back in April. Yeah. So how can you as a like arbiter of truth in this instance where you're Barry Weiss and you're speaking power to the man and whatever else she thinks, like, are they just not that intelligent? Are they so biased? They're careless. Like help me. Or do we just not know? I, I just, I take the most cynical perspective possible. Yeah. I think they're full of shit. I mean, I, I, I think they're, I, I think that confirmation bias is, is strong. And, and I think that, you know, people may be smart and people may be, may know what they're, you know, uh, may, may genuinely believe thing, things they say that aren't necessarily true. And I think that part of that is that they, they filter in information that, that confirms what they think and they filter out things that don't. And that's, that's kind of, I mean, what, what, uh, we were getting at earlier when we were talking about how fragmented media is these days and how easy it is to find something that just confirms, confirms what you think and, you know, makes you feel, uh, makes you feel smart and makes you feel like, yeah, you're on top of things. And you're, oh no, you're not clueless. You know exactly what's going on. You're oh, in the you're, in-group. You're, yeah. Oh, your, your solution to the, to the war in Ukraine. Yeah. That's the correct one. You knew it, you know, and it's like, all right. Uh, okay. You know, and I, I think that that probably factors, factors into a lot of it too. You know, I, I think that while there are obviously, you know, people who are just hacky partisans, you know, I think there are a lot of people who they think that they're telling the truth. They think that they're, that they're fighting the good fight. And even when it's very obvious to a lot of people on the outside that they're not, but your tweet was hilarious. Thanks. But it's all subjective to a point. It's subjective. I would argue. I, I think that there's a lot of objective stuff, but yeah, yeah. As we wrap up here, cause I, we've gone over time, well over time. I know that, you know, I wanted to discuss the media with you because of a variety of reasons. I read your Substack, The Present Age. Um, and specifically, I saw Margaret Sullivan tweet out, retweet your uh, one of your articles. I cannot remember for the life of me what it was, but it's like whenever I want commentary on the media, which is obviously our subject today, I read your Substack. And then the other day, I saw many Hassan, Hassan, Hassan um, tweet out like, Parker, why can't I retweet this? This is a great uh, article. And, and I say this because I truly do think, and I disagree with most of, or, or a lot of your political takes. I wouldn't say <laughs> most. I, w- I wouldn't say most. Because um, my problem with progressives more is the candidates suck mm-hmm. and they yeah. are a lightning rod rather than the policies. I don't really necessarily disagree with all the policies. Um, but what, what article did you have the most fun writing it? And do you think maybe, um, 
had a lot of impact. Not necessarily what article got the most viewers or listeners, but um, if you were to just pick an article that was fun and you thought it had a unique perspective, um, could you just briefly describe that so we can get a feel for a little bit of what people would be subscribing to? Sure. So after after the midterms, I made the I made the argument in uh, in my November fifteenth post. I wrote the clear message of the midterms: the press is out of touch with the public. And so my my argument here, you know, which was, you know, after after the twenty sixteen election, there were there were these questions: how did the media get it so wrong? How did the media get it wrong? We have to figure out how what we're doing wrong. And the answer, as I, as I kind of pointed out, was. Uh, mentioned earlier was, hey, let's let's hire some hire Brett Stevens and, and Barry Weiss to come over from the Wall, Wall Street Journal to to give us more of a conservative look at things. Uh which which kind of missed the fact that like Trump Trump's win wasn't necessarily like a win for con- conservatism. It was, you know, like, yeah, he would go along with whatever the Republican Party wants. He was, but he's just a reactionary. And and so when you when you hire people who aren't necessarily reactionaries to to take that on. Uh, you're not giving us more insight. You're just kind of setting us up for for weird stories. Like you had, you know, the Washington Post in 2017 wrote an article that had the the headline in a pro Trump town. They never stopped saying Merry Christmas. And it's like <laughs> no one ever stopped saying. Yeah, Merry Christmas. no one did. Like what you know, and 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 between that and the and the diner safari type things, you know, where it's like you're just going and interviewing random people and being like, oh, let's see. Oh, yep. Turns out Trump supporters still like Trump, even though he didn't make good on whatever promise. And, and so my argument in this piece was, you know, and I tried to tried to provide data and I tried to uh, make a compelling argument. Uh, is is that the media has moved pretty far to the right and and really missed the the midterms? I mean, as as bad as they missed uh, the 20, 2016 election, which you know I, I wouldn't even necessarily say that they they missed it so much as just they they under appreciated Trump's chances um, because they were they were still covering you know they they covered it fine they. In in fact, you know, you think about the the various stories that that shaped it. You know, New York Times broke the Clinton email server case. You know, like that that was the the one of the big stories. But they they went through this thinking like, oh, how do we miss this? How could we do better? What could we change? And then they did things that that didn't help them get to those places. And I feel like it's only made them less in touch with the public and. You know, I, I I make I make an argument. I make an argument that uh, you know, uh, p- that guys like Chris Saliza were totally out of out of their element. You know, I mean, he had I I just put a sc- screenshots of all of his a bunch of his like midterm articles up there. It was like uh, why Republican attacks on crime have been so devastating for you know Democrats. The bottom is dropping out of the 2022 election for, for Democrats. He wrote that on November 1st, you know, the Senate playing field is moving towards Republicans. And basically like all of his stuff was just so far off. And it's like, how does this guy still have a job? And now he doesn't, but <laughs> he's like, while I feel bad, while I feel bad about people who, who lost their, lost their jobs, obviously I don't feel bad for Chris Eliza. I just can't, I can't. And he, he will be fine, but I can't feel bad for him. The narrative was, from from the start that that Republicans were going to perform well in the midterms and uh, he kind of kept going with that and you know you, you you 
you point to polls that could tell you whatever you want. And that's, that's another ish, issue that sort of comes up. So, you know, I, th- I think that, you know, what, what I had hoped was after the 2020 election, after, after Trump lost that, that there would have been maybe a little more reflection in, in, uh, in the press, maybe a little like, Hey, the past four years were kind of weird. <laughs> maybe we should do something about that. Uh, but, but it didn't really, it didn't really happen, you know, and, and it, it didn't really happen after, you know, when, uh, when Democrats won, retook the house in 2018, it didn't happen after Democrats won in 2020. It didn't happen, you know, I, after the midterms, it seems like it's just mostly people losing their jobs and no one like who, who knows what things will look like six months from now in, in the world of political media. But I, uh, you know, I, I try to, one thing I like to do in my, in my work is to link to a lot of different things. My, my page basically looks like a wicked, like any, any article of mine ends up looking kind of like a Wikipedia article because you have links to like, Hey, here's this thing here. I'm explaining why, you know, this goes back to this and this, you know, it, I, I create these. You cite your sources. Yeah, I, I, yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, I link to things that, I, I don't like, you know, it's like, okay, I'll link to Breitbart, you know, like these, these <laughs> sorts of things when it's, when it's relevant, you know, and, and that, that sort of stuff where I don't want, I don't want to trick someone into having the same views as me or, or to, to, to have views closer to mine. I want to make a persuasive case. And so I, I try to do that. And sometimes I, you know, sometimes I just put things out that are kind of fun and lighthearted and jokey, like, you know, my, my most recent one is like, hey, it's going to be a bad time for the media industry. And then I have a Johnny Cash song in there. Like, <laughs> you know, that's that's another fun thing about doing a newsletter is you can kind of mess around with the the formatting a little bit, you know, as it uh, as it suits you. Awesome. Well, Parker, thank you very much for joining us. And if you're interested, folks, in subscribing to Uh, the present age. There's a link down below on the podcast description. So I suggest that you check it out, especially if this is your first time hearing Parker. I say this as a moderate centrist, liberal Democrat, that she is literally one of two substacks that I uh, pay for. And the other media is the Boston Globe, the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, New York Times. So anyways, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me.